Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to another episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. Today I have a guest, a speaker, an author, an entrepreneur, Dominic Cortuccio. We're going to be talking about getting out of a rut and how to avoid burnout. And we're going to be focusing a lot on men's health, men's inner work. And Dominic is going to share his story of how he healed from sex addiction. So stay tuned. This is Goff, owner of Goff Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com. Hi, I'm Don Damari, and you're listening to another episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, my guest is Dominic Cortuccio. He's a speaker, author, podcast host, and entrepreneur. Hi, Dominic. Don, pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for joining me on A Teaspoon of Healing. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. And so you left a 15-year corporate career. We were both at Prudential. You were at Prudential Financial. I used to work at Prudential Real Estate, so that was interesting. And you left a 15-year corporate career to become an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of people who want to make that leap. So what made you decide to do it? Yeah, yeah. It was cool. We had like a year of overlap in that 2004, 2005 area. So when I, when I decided to leave, I left behind a pretty good gig. Uh, I was running a a large sales team for the eastern half of the country. We had a $1.4 billion sales goal. Um, the company was great to me. I never looked at any other any other companies outside of Prudential Financial. I had a corner office in Times Square overlooking where the ball drops on, on New Year's and life was really good there. Um, but the decision to leave was actually a, uh, a, a decision that was a few years in the making. So in 2009, when I had turned 30 years of age, I had the most successful year uh, financially of my career up to that point. And 2009 happened to be the, the Great Recession. And it also happened to be the year where I had a breakthrough sales year. I tripled my sales goal. It was kind of an anomaly. Like Everything that could have gone right went right for me. And I was really young to doing doing the job that I was doing. I was 15 years younger than the youngest person doing the job in the company. And so I felt like I was on top of this mountain or I thought this is the top of the mountain. And I was proud of myself for, for where I'd gotten, but there was also this feeling of, oh, th this is, this is it. Like this is as good as it feels. And, and, uh, and I recognized that I wasn't going to have a year like that maybe ever again, or, you know, certainly wasn't going to be the norm for the next 30 years of my life. And when I started to actually think about if this is as good as it gets, then what are the next 30, 40 years of my working life going to be like? And that scared, that scared me. And I didn't have anyone to talk to about it because you know, I didn't talk about any of my insecurities, like a typical guy, at least at that, at that stage. And it also was going down during the time where you know, there was 20% unemployment rates. Who the hell was going to be concerned about my first world problem? 
Fortunately, I was smart enough at that point in time to allow my fear to actually take hold. And what I mean by that, I gave it some space to, to teach me, like, what was I afraid about? And I think the fear was continuing to live this default script existence. Like, I, I never really authored intentionally my life. I just, I went to college because I was supposed to do, I got a high paying job in a financial services environment because that's what a providing man was going to do. Um, that's what a successful man would do. And when I did those things and I achieved the thing that I set out to achieve, I recognized that it was just, you know, not, not the most fulfilling thing in the world for me. And the fear was living that uh, disconnected from what gave me passion for the next 30 years. And so giving that space, I, over the next five years, I really started to just experiment with what made me happy and to cultivate some of my hobbies outside of work, to spend more time outside of my career. And the funny thing was like my career was thriving more than it ever had before by prioritizing that stuff. And at the age of 35, I said, in two years, I'm going to leave. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to close this chapter of my life. And so I gave myself like a, a two-year runway uh, to work out any fears I had about leaving, to save the kind of money I needed to save, to be prudent um, if things were to go wrong or not as planned, and to learn what I needed to learn. So when I left in 2016, um, I was ready to go and to start my practice as a coach and a speaker and an author um, addressing the topics of like, how do you design a life you can't wait to live into? How do you short circuit the the um, the burnout trajectory and author your own existence? Nice. And you also, when you did this, when you first left, you took a 90-day sabbatical, including a silent retreat. And let's talk about the importance of taking a break to really determine what you want and to travel if you can. Why do you think that people should do this? From time to time, uh, one of the best decisions I made in my life was taking this ninety-day radical sabbatical between—I called it the radical sabbatical—between fifteen years of corporate and launching my new my new job and or my new my new lifestyle. And I got this idea when I was at a men's retreat, and I had a chance to meet a guy named Ian, who was on the eleventh month of his twelve-month sabbatical from eBay. And he was one of the top finance guys at eBay. And I told him about my plans of leaving Prudential. And he was like, hey, man, great on you. But do not just jump from one thing into the next like everyone else does and miss the opportunity to go out and have an adventure, to go out and play, to go out and see what life is like, to remember what it's like to be like a child and be curious. He's like, I'm on the 11th month of a 12-month sabbatical. Like I've learned what's important to me in my life because- he was at a stage where he was about to be the treasurer of eBay, like a big job. And he was like, if I wasn't flying around doing deals, acquiring other companies, if I wasn't my career, I didn't know who I was. And he was like, so I went out and found myself over these last 11 months. So I took his guidance. I bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii. I also took his guidance and I interviewed 10 other people who had done sabbaticals. They all told me the same thing. Do not plan your sabbatical the way that you plan everything else in your life, especially in the corporate world with a project plan and a backup plan and just buy a one-way ticket, go somewhere where you want, and then see how it unfolds and like make spontaneous decisions from there, which was completely counterintuitive to how I'd done my last 15 years of goal setting and action planning and daily execution. So that journey 
those 90 days, I went to Hawaii and Thailand and Bali and New Zealand and Australia. All of it was like, um, was spontaneous. I, I had wanted to take a 10 day silent meditation at some point in my life. And it was just so happened that when I was in Hawaii and I was telling some people about that desire, they were like, well, let's look it up and see if there's one happening. And it just so happened that the only 10 day silent retreat that was happening in Hawaii was happening next week. And it was the only one of the year. And I applied for it. I got in and four or five days later, I was on a flight to the big island of Hawaii where I did my 10 days of silence. And the to get back to your original question, Dawn, the idea of creating these temporary periods of like mini retirements, which is a, a term that I'm borrowing from Tim Ferriss, one of my guys that I look up to, he wrote the book, The 4-Hour Workweek. He was like, you know, why do we put off, why do we delay our life's adventures and our life's desires and dreams to the end of our life when we're not as healthy, when we're not as energized, when we're not as mobile? Like, Why don't we intervene and put those in throughout the course of our life? And when, when I did that with this sabbatical and when I teach my clients to do this with many, say, two-week trips or negotiating with their employers to take off three to five weeks, um, to bring that into this life right now, what it, fa- what it did for me and what it does for my clients is like it brings back this new sense of life and vibrancy and a spark in the eye and a childlike curiosity that seems to dim in too many people who have been grinding it out for years and decades on top of each other. Nice. And how was your experience at the silent retreat? A lot of people are doing these now and it's something I want to do actually. So how, how was your experience there briefly before we move on to the next topic? Sure. So this is a 10 day silent meditation, which basically means, you know, you're waking up at four in the morning, you're spending about 16 hours in meditation you are not reading or writing or exercising. You're doing nothing. You're just you're meditating or walking or just reflecting. And the intention for that is when you strip away all of your distractions, when we get stressed, when we get overwhelmed, when we get afraid, some of us eat too much. Some of us drink too much. Some of us gamble. Some of us go down the, the path of pornography, which is a one thing that a lot of men do. And when you strip away all of that, then you're just left with yourself. And my first two days was the most uncomfortable. Most, most people will tell you the first like two to three days are the worst because like all of your survival mechanisms are screaming for a distraction, are screaming for that numbing mechanism or whatever escape that you take to, to avoid reality. And when that's not there, it can be excruciating. Some people leave, you know, like there were a few people who just left the retreat because they couldn't take that. On the other side of that, I woke up on the third morning and it was like a dam had broken. Like there was this sense of calm and peace that took over. And for the next few days, which felt like eternities because it's, you know, all you have is time. What I started to settle into was this this sense of calm and not needing to do or not needing to accomplish or not needing to be responsible for someone else, I'd never felt, I'd never felt that before. Most people have never felt that kind of freedom before. That was the lightest experience of my life. And the last thing I'll share with you, Don, is that now that I'm a few years removed from that, three years removed, the biggest lasting effect is that 
at my cellular level, no matter what happens, whether it's like a really great thing or a really bad thing, I know that that experience is just temporary, like that that experience will pass because oftentimes when we end up in like a really crappy situation, we feel like we're going to be stuck here forever, especially for people who have experienced depression. You feel like you've always been in hell and you'll always be in hell. But that experience of meditation taught me the transient nature of of great feelings, of terrible feelings. So now when I'm really in a, like a rough mood, I recognize that it's it's just a temporary thing and that if I surrender to it, I can actually cycle through it much more quickly. And that gives me more power and control in my life. Nice. And you're also the author of a book, Design Your Future, Three Simple Steps to Stop Drifting and Take Command of Your Life. So what is the first step that you would recommend someone who's in a rut or they're drifting, they're unsure of their purpose or what path they should take? What's the first step somebody should do? Yeah, right on. And and before I give you that first step, I think it's really helpful to get clear on what the problem is, right? That rut that you're talking about. Drift is that state. Then I borrow this from Napoleon Hill, who wrote the book, Think and Grow Rich. But he talks about drift quite a bit in the number one most important book of my life, which is called Outwitting the Devil. And drift is a concept that Napoleon Hill distilled from 25,000 interviews of people at the end of their lives who felt like they lived a life of regret, like they had left chips on the table where they thought that um, they didn't live a purpose-driven existence. So he distilled their secrets. He wrote that book. And drift is this state that we oftentimes find ourselves in unconsciously where we think that we're making conscious decisions, that we're navigating our day in and day out parts of our lives, but actually it's just like one day bleeding into the next. We fall into this rut and that rut ends up extending over weeks, months, years, or even decades of our life. And it's only when typically an outside force thrusts itself upon us do we wake up from that. You know, we lose the job or we lose the loved one or we get sick unexpectedly. But what, what we're talking about doing is instead of waiting for that outside force to thrust itself upon us to wake us up, can we wake ourselves up? So this gets to your question, Dawn, like the three steps of breaking free from drift on our own terms. The first step is awakening. An awakening is, it's basically an awareness plus the willingness to, to actually make a change. And here's what I mean by that. Most smokers have the awareness that continuing to smoke will cause them problems, cause them harm, potentially cause them cancer. Most people who are not where they are, they want to be physically, maybe they're overweight, are aware if I eat well and I exercise well, then I will be healthier than I am now. But oftentimes, like there's still something stopping them from changing. When you have an awakening, there's something deeper that occurs that, that says, I'm now ready to change. And typically, the awakening comes when the pain of staying the same becomes worse than your perceived pain of change. So the pain of continuing to stay stuck where you are, the pain of the status quo actually becomes worse than this perceived pain of change, like having to modify your diet, like having to go to the gym or getting to go to the gym. Once, once that equation is flipped, that's when the awakening occurs and it's, it's okay, I'm now ready to make the change. And that's step number one. We talked a little bit about this before we got on the, the recording, but 
you said there's a way to shortcut the burnout tra- trajectory. A lot of people, they're they're not drifting. They're doing what they, they think should, they should be doing. They're very motivated. They're kicking butt, basically, but they're getting burned out. And there's a trajectory that you mentioned. And how can you shortcut that? How can you change that? Yeah, right on. So there's a, there's a few things I'll share with you. I want to start with a story. One of my clients who, who I love dearly, she's, she's amazing. She's 43 years old, senior vice president, working for one of the largest financial services firms, mother of two young boys under the age of five, loving husband. And she's a top 10 producer at her company. Also five-time Ironman finisher, five Ironmans and multiple other like triathlons and marathons, et cetera. So world beater. And uh, she rang me up about six months ago because she ended up in the back of an ambulance for what she thought was she was having a heart attack and thought she might lose her life. When she got to the hospital, she found out that uh, all her vitals were tip-top condition. Uh, she, she physically looks like the model of health, like eats well, works out well, right? You have to to compete in Ironmans. And what actually ended up happening was she had suffered a panic attack. And fortunately for her, like her panic attack woke her up. That was her awakening. And sometimes like people have the blessing. I've had my blessings of, you know, wake up calls that have caused me to, you know, to make a change. And what I'm encouraging your listeners and what I encourage my clients and my students is like, please don't wait for that, that panic attack or that heart attack. Cause actually it could be, it could be the real deal. Like it could like, you know, with, with my client, I mean, she ended up okay, but there are people who end up not okay because of this. So the way that you short circuit that is <laughs> quite easily like you have to make the determination that you're not going to wait for something to happen to you, that you are going to be the one who takes command. Like you are going to be the one who creates your intentional awakening. So that this is one of the things that I talk about in the book is unintentional awakenings. This is step one. And unintentional awakenings is like what my client had where she got the panic attack. She didn't intend for that to happen. What you want to do is create your intentional awakenings. So that can happen with listening to a podcast like yours. That can happen with reading books, getting a coach, becoming a part of a group program, doing inner work, meditating, journaling. There's plenty of different mechanisms that like you can say, ah, there's my awakening. Now I'm willing to do something different. And, And then what I encourage from that point is to go to step number two. Uh, which is disrupting. So first step is awakening yourself, ready to take change. Step number two is disrupting your normal patterns and habits. And I love disruption in the form of experiments and in the form of temporary abstinence periods. So for an example, a temporary abstinence period of 50 days of no alcohol, um, 50 days or 30 days or 10 days of no eating after 7 p.m. 30 days of not looking at your cell phone within the first hour of waking up, 100 days of no television or Netflix, or one week of no television or Netflix. These are disruptions to your normal patterns and habits that can illuminate for you why you're so dependent on the things that you're dependent on. It's almost like you know the 10-day silent meditation, like I was saying before, you don't really realize what your escape mechanisms and your numbing mechanisms are until you strip everything away. And you're like, oh, wow, this is what my, <laughs> my comfort blanket, my blankie is. This is like my escape clause. So the disruption 
is the way, like is another part of the process for you to avoid the burnout. And the third and final step, once you've awakened, once you've disrupted, is now to design. So ADD, awaken, disrupt, design. The design part is like, okay, how do I want to intentionally design my relationship with food, my relationship with my technology, my cell phone, my relationship with my workout habits and patterns. And that gives you an intentional strategy that that makes you more intentional than 99% of people who just kind of drift through life on their own automatic patterns, automatic habits. And the last thing I'll say here, Don, before I pause is the books that I've just mentioned, whether it's my own or Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill, I've got a bunch of free book resources on my website called doinnerwork.com forward slash books, doinnerwork.com forward slash books. And there's like three different book lists on there that you can download that have great book titles that can help you to short circuit the burnout trajectory, find purpose and meaning, command your time, these kinds of books. Nice. Yeah, so it's doinnerwork.com. Yeah, doinnerwork.com and then forward slash books is it'll take you right to the page that has my book on it and the three book lists on there are so like I do a lot of work with men and one of the book lists is 12 books every man needs to read so if your audience is primarily women if you want to you know get something for your guys and nudge them in the right direction 12 books every man should read 18 books every business leader should read and then 15 books written by women that we love um those are the three lists we have on there I love that now speaking of men's inner work. We do have a lot of women, but there are definitely some men listening to this and we explored men's emotional health on here. So you work with men that want to do the inner work. And so how do you, how do you work with men? How do you motivate them to optimize their life and to do this inner work? There's a lot more men that are stepping up to do this and they've not been encouraged to do this in the past, but it's changing. Yeah, you're, it, it is changing and it's a beautiful thing. What I've found is men come to inner work in one of two different avenues. Number one, something is like really broken and they're really ready to fix it. And then number two, there are guys who are just looking for an edge, right? They're looking like they're, they're constantly performing and they want to uh, take it to the next level. Men come to me in both categories. What I found is like I'm trying to reach the guys who, who have been told that it's weak to ask for help, to who think it makes them uh, untrustable or makes them like a failure if they admit weakness or fear of or insecurity of some kind. All of my positioning to talk to men is like, listen, guys who are doing inner work, they're playing bigger games in their life, right? They're they're like they're they're playing out on the edge. They're the first movers. They're the leaders. They're magnetic to women. They're irresistible to women. Like these are the things, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in a language that, that these guys who are looking for an edge are like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. So for me, it's really important to talk about it from the, the standpoint of, and this is what we talk about on our podcast, which is called the Man Amongst Men podcast. If you want to be on the cutting edge of personal performance, on lighting up your sex life, and on living a purpose-driven life on your terms, then like, come with us. And that is the vehicle. That's like the frame through which we get guys to then take the inner journey. And this inner journey is asking these deeper questions around, you know, what do I want from this life? And how did I decide what's so important to me? 
And if I were to look at my calendar and see how I orient my time, is that in alignment with my values? If I were to do an inventory of the people around me, do I have people in my life who can, who like actually know every bit of who I am, the ugly parts too, and still love me and still support me and give me good guidance? Like most guys don't have these things. And then the question becomes, okay, well, why not? What's prevented you from that? And then like, how do we get you there? And what we found is, you know, once guys step out of their own silo, this is another thing that a lot of guys do is even when they start to ask some of these deeper questions around, maybe the life that I thought I was building and what I thought was important or I thought would make me happy, maybe I've been off base. The first thing most guys do is they go into like their own little hole and they'll start reading books and magazines or listen to podcasts and they won't talk to other guys about it and they'll try and solve it all on their own. And what we say is personal development in isolation by yourself, it's slow, it's shallow, it's incomplete. You need to go out and like find your tribe of dudes who are working on this stuff too. And, and we're over here. And, and like, we want you to come and find that there are a lot of really top-notch guys doing this inner work who are suffering through some of the same stuff that you are, who have also found solutions. Let's learn from each other. Nice. And how can a woman support, say that her man wants to, is interested in doing some inner work. How, how can a woman support either a boyfriend, spouse, or, or a friend that, that wants to do this? Women, I love this question, Don. Thank you for asking that. Women are so essential in this process. And before, before I talk about how, they can, how, how your women can help, the first thing to be very clear about, and I'm going to speak directly to the women in your, in your audience, the responsibility for a man changing, for a man doing this in her work, the responsibility is not on your shoulders. It is on ours as men, right? So take that off of your shoulders. That is not your burden to carry. It is on our shoulders as men to make that move. Having said that, you are extraordinarily influential in being able to drop the breadcrumbs and to guide and to nudge and to show the way to speak to the highest version of ourselves, even when we don't feel it for ourselves, to call us forward on that journey. And as I say these words, you know, I think about the one woman who unleashed she unleashed a monster in me of personal development 10 years ago when I hit that point in my life where I was on the top of the mountains career-wise, but probably at the, the lowest valley in my personal life. The one woman in my life who knew me better than anyone, her name is Grace Gold. Grace could see that I was suffering and she spoke, she spoke to me in a way that I could hear her, not as if I was broken, but she said things like, you know, Dominic, I know that you are a guy who's always pushing himself to go to this next level. And some of the most successful men, business owners and entrepreneurs and friends of mine that I know have done these things. And she recommended Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, which is on one of those book lists that I mentioned to you. David Data's The Way of the Superior Man, also on the book list that I recommend. Those were the first two books that sent me on my on the path of like introspection and doing inner work. And then she recommended that I go to the Landmark Forum, which was my very first personal development program that I ever went on. And she did it not telling me what I needed to do, but she dropped the breadcrumb. She made an invitation and she made the invitation in a way that I could hear her. So it felt like it was my own decision. 
And so women are extremely, extremely influential. Where I see it go wrong, Dawn, is when it becomes, you need to do this. Or, or it's positioned in a way where like a man feels like he's broken. And like I've seen women say, kind of pass along a book list to their, to their husband or to their boyfriend and be like, hey, uh, I listened to a podcast from this guy, Dominic. And he said that like men need to read these books. And then a guy will be like, uh, what's wrong with me? Why do I need to read these books? Like the framing of it is, is like your intentionality and how you speak to the king inside of him or like, you know, the part of him that's the highest version, framing it is very important and always recognizing it's not your burden and it is his choice to walk through that door. And it may take, it may, it may take a few, like a drip campaign, a PR campaign over an extended period of time before he actually takes you up on that offer. Because guys can be dense. Like guys can hear the, we can be dense. Like we, we may need to hear the same freaking thing 11 or 1100 times before it's time for us to be like, oh yeah. And then we think it's our own idea. But please, like if, you, if, you, if you're committed to, the, to your guy, then like play the long game with him. Nice. We also talked before this interview, and this is kind of related to it, about sex addiction. And you have been pretty open about this, that that you went to some recovery. And I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of women too, that it is kind of a, it's an issue for a lot of guys. It's an issue for women too. But so how do you address this with men? And you're, you've been pretty open about it on your podcast. It's actually the uh, the most downloaded podcast that we have. Uh, it's a two-part series of my four years in Sex Addicts Anonymous. So if, if you're interested in hearing about that story, the journey of the making of a sex addict, the podcast is called The Man Amongst Men Podcast. You can find that anywhere on like iTunes, Spotify. You can also find it on our doinnerwork.com website. And I think like the, the most helpful place to start there, Dawn, and that story is you know, when I, when I was young as a child, first discovering like my sexual feelings, like as an eight-year-old kid discovering a Playboy for the first time and feeling like the surge of electricity in my body because I'm 40 years old, the Playboy was how I discovered it. It was like, oh my God, like I, I want this all the time. But I also recognized in my household with amazing parents who were extraordinarily uncomfortable talking about this stuff that like I immediately knew that what I was doing was wrong. My parents were the ones when we would watch a movie on TV as kids, like, and there'd be like a sexual scene unfolding on the television. They would lunge across the couch and be like, cover your eyes, <laughs> followed by like 10 minutes of just agonizing discomfort in the room that could be cut with a knife. And at, at that stage early on, the lesson I learned was I had this physical sensation of, oh my God, I want to see that with this also overwhelming physical sensation of that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And like, and you're not supposed to see that. Mix that with eight years of Catholic schooling and you're oh, going to hell right. for, okay, so you get it. And yeah. <laughs> so at a very early age, these very natural feelings that I had no, uh, no understanding of how to process became wronged and became, you know, like the message was hide it. When I hit 13, discovered masturbation, which basically felt like sitting on a free pile of heroin that I could access at any time, while I was a very sensitive kid, that I didn't know how, and, and changing schools from like a very small Catholic school to a large public school and losing my identity and feeling like I was spiraling, 
the only thing that I had, the only arrow in my quiver, only tool in my toolkit to navigate my emotional pain was numbing out with masturbation and fantasy. So it was something that like I, I would do four or five times a day, every single day as a teenager, because it was the thing that allowed me to navigate the hardships of overwhelm, of feeling alone, of feeling frustrated. And unbeknownst to me, like I built this pattern, this sexualized pattern of escaping my emotional feelings. I didn't have meditation. I didn't have breath work. I didn't have people I could talk to or confide in and have counselors. So I figured that out that way. And a lot of the men who I ended up meeting in Sex Addicts Anonymous also developed their sex addiction in response to escaping some sort of situations, just like how alcoholics and drug addicts and people with eating disorders find their way. It's just to navigate a situation they were emotionally unequipped to deal with. So for 20 plus years, that became my primary mechanism for navigating any emotional stress in my life. And it was a very secret, hidden, private part of my life that I knew there was shame around and I never wanted anyone to find out about it. But I also never knew the pervasive level of of how much of an effect it was having on the entirety of my life and my ability to connect with a woman on a deep, meaningful, intimate level. And it actually showed up as I never fell in love with a woman until the age of 35 because this private side of me that I hid from the world, I only presented this public-facing version that I thought could be loved and respected and applauded. And finally, one woman came into my life who could penetrate the deeper part of me, which both invigorated me, but also scared the hell out of me. Because I was like, if she finds this this hidden side of me, she's not going to love me. So I kept it hidden. As my love for her grew, I found this weird feeling of, but I still can't stop myself from sexting other women. Because it it was still, it was the 20 years of conditioning of navigating overwhelm and stress and it's all these things. And so one day, it was December 28th, 2012 at a hotel in Boulder, Colorado, where I come out of the bathroom. She's holding my cell phone, pale in the face. And she throws it at me and runs out of the room. And I looked at the where, you know, what she was looking at. And it was a string of text messages that were as heartbreaking as anyone um, could ever possibly find with you know, with one woman that um, I'd been engaging with sexually, um, not 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 physically, but through sex messages, and there was a, no no fewer than a dozen other women in the phone with the same kinds of messages as well. And for the first time in my life, in my thirty five years, my public life and my private life collapsed into one life. And I have a deep amount of gratitude looking at that moment and the gift that she gave me in exposing that because like, I, I actually look at that as the birthplace of the new me. And when she came back into the room, I, I was desperate to save this relationship. And so I said, I think I have a problem. And it was something that I thought about over the past year. I'd, I'd Googled Sex Addicts Anonymous. I'd taken some quizzes. And I was like, I'm going to go to see a therapist when we get back from here. I'm going to go into 12-step meetings. I'm going to start doing some work. And that's exactly how it played out. And what ended up happening after like the first three or four months of going through the Sex Addicts Anonymous protocol was I originally went in there to save my relationship 
and I really didn't think I had that big of a problem. But over the first three or four months, I recognized that my my issues ran deep, as most people who go there find out, much deeper than I thought. And I recognized that I had a lot more work to do. And that's where I ended up doing an intense amount of work for four years until I chose to leave in May of 2017. And how do you feel? How did you feel after that compared to when you started? Like night and day. One of the things that I found in my introspection was the number one form of validation in my life, the number one form of worth, how I prescribed my own self-worth was sexual validation from women. So I, I could be on the top of a corporate ladder. I could be the number one sales guy. Those things were important to me. But like, if, if women didn't find me sexually attractive, then I actually felt a sense of worthlessness. That's an unconscious operating mechanism that I had, which I finally understood when I was doing the work. And what I ended up doing in the process of that, like when, when I built my life that way, I ended up creating these dynamics with women that were, they, they were highly usury, right? I, like I would, I, I would extract what I needed. I would extract that val- a validation from a, a particular woman to make me feel okay. And once I had it from her, then I would need it from someone else. It became these like, it was never ending. What I learned through the recovery process was this is no longer a, what can I take or what can I get from somebody? It was more of a, what kind of connection can I forge? What can we give each other? So from extraction to connection, and that's a big thing that both men and women um, and, and a lot of the work that I do need to understand and have to work on because many people come to relationships trying to extract feelings of safety and security, trying to extract sexual validation or sexual escape from you know the stressors of their everyday life. They don't even know they're doing that. And it's it's quite selfish. And and it's not even it's not intentionally selfish, but it is selfish. And so when I started to recognize I can actually get a lot of these things that I've been trying to find in other people, I can actually get that through my own inner work. Like finding validation in the kind of man that I'm becoming, the the practices I'm doing to to make me feel good about myself to to be there for other people these are the things that allow me to show up as a man that I'm proud of being and what I've found through that process Don here here's one of the things that like was most shocking to me when I entered sex addicts anonymous I, I thought now I have the scarlet letter of being an addict I'm a broken guy who the hell is going to want to date me right and and I was scared as hell for anyone to find out that I was going to these 12-step meetings. Here I am today, like with a podcast talking openly about sex addiction. So like what happened in between? Well, it was recognizing that when I truly started to own who I am, when I started to find support in other people who accepted me for who I am, not just for the good parts of me, I built this really strong foundation that I could stand upon. And I recognized I can be me. Like I can be me. And even these ugly bits of me, I can be me and maybe not for everybody, but the people who I am for actually love me a lot harder than anything I've ever experienced before. And and also these ugly bits that that were a part of me started to dissolve away anyway because those ugly bits came from the shame of keeping a secretive life. And once I started living less a secretive life, those ugly bits started to dissolve and disappear. I've become more trustworthy 
to men and women. People look to me as a leader. I mean, I'm, I, I told you before we started this podcast, I'm running a women's retreat in New York City for a dozen VP, senior VP, high-performing women in a financial services environment who know about my history because of the work that I've done and because of the humility with which I speak about it. I don't have all the answers and I've owned the the stuff that I've done and I'm atoning for it and I've atoned for it. And for many people, that feels good. It feels authentic and that they can place faith in that as they're struggling with their own demons themselves. For a woman who might be experiencing the same thing as as your partner when she, when she found the phone or or something like, you know, it could be men as well with a woman, but I'm just focusing on the man in the position. How can a man maybe who is in your position, you know, a partner finds his phone, you know, with a dozen messages from, you know, sexting woman and no judgment, no judgment. I'm not judging anybody, but for you, it was an epiphany. It was a, it was a turning point. So how can men begin to see that as a turning point if they want to save a relationship or just get better at it? How, What's the first step they can do towards resolving that? You know, if if someone has been just discovered, right? Like if, if like if you're someone who's listening and you've been discovered and there's been a fracture in your relationship, like I would honestly direct you to the podcast that uh, that I recorded on this, like my two part series on my four years in Sex Addicts Anonymous, because I go into to grave detail around what happened when she found my sex messages, what we did wrong. Um, in terms of like what caused more problems. And what I mean by that is not getting the kind of counseling that we needed fast enough. And I tried to share half truths with her to just try and stem the problem. And over time, like she started to ask more questions that reveal that I hadn't shared everything and it, it worsened the trust. So I would have placed, I would recommend a lot more professional advice or professional counseling very early on. So go to the podcast. It's called the Man Amongst Men podcast. And the episodes are Dominic's Four Years and Sex Addicts Anonymous. Check that out. And I give some resources on like how to find a therapist. And if you're a man or even a woman who's starting to question, like, do I have an issue? Do I have something that may be addictive or compulsive in nature? You can Google Patrick Carnes Sex Addicts Quiz. And Patrick, his last name is uh, C-A-R-N-E-S, Carnes, Sex Addicts Quiz. And I think there's a list of like 20 or 30 questions or maybe more. I forget. It's been a while since I've taken it. That you can start to figure out like, is there something compulsive in nature that you are are dealing with and could possibly use some, some professional guidance in, in helping to navigate? Thank you. And that was really helpful. Before we sign off, I wanted to ask one question that's completely unrelated to sex addiction or it's a little bit about mental health. Now, you mentioned technology earlier, how we can manage it and make it work for us rather than having it manage us, whether it's our phones, just constant access to Netflix, YouTube. It can be very, it's just, it's a distraction. It can be fun, but it's a distraction. So how can we, what's a one tip on how you can make technology work better for you rather than taking over your life? Yeah, I'll go specifically to the cell phone. So I, I do um, a lot of keynote speaking, and I've done a keynote speech all over the world uh, on on this particular topic. I can give you a couple piece of piece of advice. So number one, with your cell phone, most people can't answer the questions of how much time do I spend on my cell phone per day, 
how many times do I check my phone per day? And what are my problem times per day? Meaning, where do I go down the rabbit hole? Where do I spend the most times? If you don't know how much time you're spending on your phone per day, you'll be shocked to learn that you're probably, most people underestimate how much time they spend on their phone by 50%. So if you think you spend an hour on your phone per day, it's most likely two hours. If you spend, if you think you spend two hours on your phone, it's most likely four hours. And I know the Apple phone has, uh, has recently done an update that has like your screen time tracker. So it actually does calculate some of these things for you. I would recommend instead on your iPhone uh, to download the Moment app, which I've been using for a few years that helps to track the times of day that are your most problematic. Most people jump right out of bed and spend 45 minutes on their phone. At the end of the night, they're sitting in their bed, an hour on their phone. The bookends of your day are like you know, buried in your phone. That's the first thing, last thing. So if you download the Moment app, it'll give you that. And if you're on a, an Android uh, quality time is the app that teaches you that stuff. And I also have a podcast on this. I think it's um, like 10 ways you're addicted to your smartphone and five ways to fix it. And I have a cheat sheet on there. Like you can listen to, it's like a 30 minute podcast. You can listen to that whole thing on how to take back command of your technology. And then I offer like a one page PDF that you can download that has like a bunch of hacks on there for you as well. Nice. So to find your podcast, it's man amongst men. And it's on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you can get podcasts. Yeah, Spotify, et cetera. And if you if you want to go to doinnerwork.com, it's you could find do you could find the podcast right there on doinnerwork.com. Great. And your book is available on Amazon and you also have links on your website and also your speaking engagements as well. Can people find that on there? Yeah, all that stuff is on there. And I had to contact me as a as a potential speaker. And on Instagram, it's I'm uh, Dominic Q. So D-O-M-I-N-I-C-K-Q. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dominic, for joining me today on A Teaspoon of Healing. And is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, thank you, Dawn. Um, I would just say if, if the majority of your listeners are women, uh, once again, like you, you can play such an extraordinary role. I know so many of the men in my life who are doing inner work found their way there through your gentle nudges, through your guidance, and for the fellows who are listening, guys, I can't begin to tell you how good life can be if you take the step on the inner journey and start to ask some of these deeper questions. You can have as much money as you want, as much fame as you want. You can have the ideal relationship that you want, a magnetic sex life, if you are willing to take a step on that inner journey and step outside of the way that you've always done it before. So please come and find us, and we'd love to have you over at doinnerwork.com. Thank you so much, Dominic, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Don. Susan, you remember the time we were in Orange County? We were driving around and we got lost, and we ran into this place called Avila's El Ranchito. You remember the place? The place had awesome decor and authentic margaritas. Did you know that Avila's El Ranchito has been around since 1966? They have 13 locations throughout Orange County. Visit Salvador Avila's location in Lake Forest and Foothill Ranch for great food, ambiance, and specialty margaritas. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me or for my guest, please visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com, and go to the contact page. 
You can also email me, dawn at teaspoonofhealing.com or visit my Instagram at teaspoonofhealing. Stay tuned next week for another episode. And if you are not a current subscriber to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe and then you will not miss another episode. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of the use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein.